Welcome back to our third week of our BC series. This series is, is just a deep dive into the Old Testament. We have two goals for this series. The first one is to draw out the character of God from the Old Testament. Like, who is he? What's his activity? What's he about? And then secondly is to figure out where in the Old Testament do we see Jesus? Because the, the entire Old Testament, whether you, if you've been here the last couple weeks, you know, is just a big, huge flashing arrow that's pointing to Jesus. And so two weeks ago, we kicked it off with Jonah, and we looked at God's mercy. Last week, we looked at Abraham and Isaac, and we looked at God's provision and faithfulness. And this week, we're going to look at Adam and Eve and look at God's loving kindness. But before we get there, I wanted to just ask a quick question. How many of y'all are state fair people? Raise your hand. Like, you go every year religiously. Not that many. I'm surprised. Have you, let me ask this. Who has been to the state fair? Okay, there we go. Okay, that's better. Well, we, I, I'm a big fan of the state fair, all right? But I don't do the rides because I don't want to die. Um, I don't trust the people that, that put those together on a weekly basis, that they're driving down the freeway. Who knows what nuts and bolts are falling off? I don't want to find out. So I don't do the rides. But here's what I do do. I do two things at the state fair. One, I eat food. And two, I eat my food and I watch people. Because those are the two best things on the state fair. Like just people watching at the state fair or any carnival that you grew up in in your hometown is fantastic, right? You get to sit there and eat your food, watch people eat their food and ask yourself, why did they decide to wear that while they ate that? And you're like, man, this is fantastic. And we pay a lot of money to go do it, right? And the state fair is great. And you walk down the midway and there's these guys and gals just screaming at you. Hey, you know, come over here. They, they, they question every man's masculinity in front of their girlfriend. They're like, hey, I bet you can't do this. I bet you'd like to win one of these prizes. Can you do it? And like, you're like, you're absolutely, I can. And you just start pulling out, you know, the, the fives and the twenties. And pretty soon you're like, you know what? I'm now broke. We got to go. So the state fair is great. But it also does something that is interesting. Well, you know what, before we get there, hold on. I do want to share this part. I want to share my favorite foods because I know you all have your favorite foods beyond the cinnamon rolls, okay? Here are the things at the state fair that are those things that you look at and you think about and you're like, I'm going to do that. Knowing full well that within one hour, you are going to regret that decision wholeheartedly. Right? You're going to be like, this, this, this looks good. My eyes are drawn to it. It's food. I'm hungry. So practically, it's a good decision. And then you're like, you know what? And it's a benefit to everyone around me because I won't be hangry anymore. So you know what? Let's do this. Let's make the purchase. And so we do it. So here's, I want to let's off my five favorite things that I've ever seen at the Oklahoma State Fair. Some of you will recognize these because you've seen it. And some of you will recognize it because you have eaten it. Here we go. The first one is the bacon-wrapped corn on the cob. Anything bacon-wrapped at the state fair is a must-do, right? Number two, this maybe is my, I have never had this, but I really want to have this, the boneless rib parfait. I know, your, you, your reaction was mine. You're like, excuse me? <laughs> a boneless rib parfait. I only know parfaits at one location, that's McDonald's. And the only thing I know that is in a parfait is yogurt. And so that sounds disgusting, but it's not. Because what a, a boneless rib parfait is, is a cup with ribs in it, mashed potatoes, covered in gravy. Now, who's with me, okay? Like, that's, that's something we're going to need to do, 
All right, and then the next one is deep fried chocolate, enough said. Next one is a deep fried giant gummy bear. Anybody ever had that at the State Fair? This next one is a must do, is a French toast cheeseburger. Let me say that again. A French toast cheeseburger. Oh, put a fried egg on that, look out, here we go. And then lastly, another deep fried is deep fried watermelon. I don't even know how you do that without disintegrating it. But all those things, we go to the state fair, we buy it and we're like, you know what? It looks good, it's gonna be good for me because I'm not gonna be hungry anymore and everyone around me is gonna benefit because I'm not gonna be grumpy anymore. And so we make a decision. And inevitably, not only are we out $40, we feel terrible. <laughs> we feel like there's a brick in our stomach and then we start counting the calories and we're like, oh my gosh, why did I do that? Because it was a boneless rib parfait, that's why. But here's the deal. I only tell that story because we live in a carnival world of shiny lights, of people yelling at us, promising bigger and better, and that the grass is greener. But they never tell you that the game is actually broken and the game is actually rigged. It's broken and rigged in their favor. They never tell you that. They never tell you that there's an invitation, that their invitation to come and spend money, whether it's at their food or at their game, is actually a self-serving invitation, a self-justifying and ultimately self-destructive invitation. And so tonight we're gonna look at a story where the things promised are not the things delivered, and we will see how God's voice cuts in to the noise, the lies, and the shame. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter three. And we're gonna look at a story that may be the world's very first carnival moment. The world's very first, hey, look over here, I've got something better for you, moment. So let me just tell you this story, you're probably familiar with it, whether you grew up in church or not, this is one that, that uh, goes beyond the church walls. So at the end of Genesis chapter two, what we see is God having a conversation with Adam and he tells Adam this wonderful promise. He said, listen, I've given you the whole garden. You can eat from anything in the garden except the one tree, the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil. The whole garden is yours except that one tree. And so after that promise, I was like, that's a pretty good deal. He's like, but I have no one to share this promise with. I have no one to eat with. I have no one to sit down and eat my fried whatever with. And so God says, well, I will give you Eve. And so God creates Eve. And then we're in Genesis chapter three. And all of a sudden, the whole situation changes. And Satan, the enemy, enters in in the form of a serpent. And he starts whispering questions. And he says to Eve, did God really say that? Are you sure? Because that doesn't sound like something that he would say. And he and Eve have a discourse and they talk back and forth and she kind of thinks about it like, you know what, you're right. Well, this, this looks good, let's do it. And so she takes the fruit and she eats it and she gives some to Adam, which by the way was standing right there. He does not get off uh, that easily. He was there. And all of a sudden they realize they're naked. Their eyes have been peeled back and they notice something they've never noticed before, they're naked. And so in their embarrassment and their shame, they run and hide in the trees. It doesn't tell us how long, but it says he, they hid in the trees. And then God started walking through the garden in the cool of the evening. And he noticed something. 
God noticed that Adam and Eve were nowhere to be found. He didn't hear them. He didn't see them. And so he asks a very simple question. Where are you? And Adam kind of pokes out from behind the tree and he says, right here. I was uh, terrified of you. And so I ran over here and hid because I'm scared now. And I'm naked, so I'm behind the tree. And God says, wait, what? Who told you you were naked? And then he follows up with another question. He says, oh, wait, did, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? And immediately Adam like I, it, it kind of drives me crazy that he's like our, 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 the, the father of the human race. Like he immediately turns into, well, actually, this woman that you gave me is the one that gave me the fruit. So really, God, it's your fault. And that's a pretty bold move. Can we agree with that? That's a pretty, pretty bold statement. And then he makes excuses and he blames. And then God turns to Eve and says, did you... Did you, did you do that? And she says, well, the, I was deceived. And then I ate. And then the story takes a turn that you hope didn't happen. And God says, well, that breaks my heart, but we're gonna have to split ways now because I'm a holy God and you have chosen to go off on your own and rebel and live and trust something that is not me, something that is unholy, and so I'm gonna to have to escort you out of the garden. And therein lies the fall of man. The very first sin, the very first temptation, the very first excuses, and the separation between us and God. And so I wanna rewind a little bit and kind of walk back through this story as we have the last couple weeks and pick out a couple things that I think tonight as young adults, we can take and we can look at our life, we can bring them into our life and we can grow from it, we can learn from it and hopefully become more like Christ by doing so. So if your Bibles are open to Genesis three, I wanna read verses one through seven. Follow me here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is my first point tonight, is that Satan will tempt us to dis distrust God's word and distort God's character. Satan will tempt us to distrust God's word and distort God's character. You see, the first thing that Satan does here in verse one, did you catch it? He said, did God actually, did he really say that? He tries to get him to doubt God's word, or get her to doubt God's words. But if you notice, two things happen. 
One, he intentionally misquotes God. I mean, he doesn't even get it close. Because what's the promise? The promise of God to Adam is you can eat from any tree in the garden except this one. What does Satan say? He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He, he manipulates God's word. Right? He misrepresents what God said. And then even Eve misquotes it back to him. Right? She adds something that wasn't there. She adds, and we can't even touch it. It's not what God said. God said you could eat from any tree in the garden, not just this one. And, and, and Satan does a really quick sleight of hand. It's very masterful. You see, he takes a positive command of God. You may eat from every tree except the one of good, the knowledge of good and evil. That's a positive. God's being abundantly gracious. You can have of any tree except one. What does Satan do? He turns it into a negative. He says, he won't let you have that? Are you serious? You see what he did there? He tried and take God, instead of him being abundantly giving, he tries to paint God's word as withholding. And instead of viewing God and his word as good and generous, he tries to paint him as restrictive and restraining. And it was at this point, when he misquotes God's promise to Adam. And Eve misquotes God's promise to Adam. Satan knew he had her. He knew she didn't know what God had said. And so then, it was game on. Because by bringing into question God's word, Satan now opens up the question about God's character. Look at verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Stop. What did he just accuse God's character of? He's not telling the truth. He's lying to you. You will not surely die. He's put, not only is he twisting and manipulating God's words, he's painting God's character to be a liar. Right? He, he, he's putting doubt on God's goodness. And he's putting doubt on sin's badness. If God lies to her, how can he be good? If he can convince Eve that maybe that's not what he said, and that what he said is not actually true, then it's gonna be an easy jump to show that God is bad and sin is good. You see, Satan's ultimate goal is to convince you and I that God is bad and your appetite is good. That's his ultimate goal is to remove God off of his throne and put your desires and your appetites on the throne. And look at the pattern of Eve's reason in verse six. She says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, you see a pattern it was practical. I'm hungry. That's food. That's good for me. It looks good. It's a delight. I would like that. And it's to my advantage because it's the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it, it, it's to my advantage to eat this. 
You see, there's the lines. It's practical, it looks good, it's to my advantage. Oh, then, okay. When God's character and his word become clouded and confusing, that makes total sense. It makes total sense. It would be really hard not to do that. Just like it's really hard not to eat a boneless rib parfait. Because you know what? I'm hungry. And it's food. So practically, that solves a problem. It looks good because I like ribs and I like mashed potatoes. So it's pleasing to my eye. And then lastly, it's to my advantage because I will no longer be hangry and I'll be able to enjoy the fare. You see, Satan is a master at what he's doing here. He is weaving a tapestry of lies and logic that lead to the downfall of mankind. This is one of the most masterful sections of all of scripture. He sets her up with doubting God's character and his word, and then he gets her. Last week I shared a quote from something my wife had written, and because she's a fantastic author, I'm going to share something that is incredible that she wrote about this very story. It's on the screens if you want to look at it and follow me along. It says, the deceiver's, the deceiver's lie is that God doesn't really love us, that he's not really good, that he's not enough, that we are missing out, that we can't trust him, not really. We ought to do what seems right to us. We ought to take what's offered. We ought to look out for ourselves because God won't. If God really loved us, he wouldn't let us feel hungry or hurt or lonely or uncomfortable. Satan has no new tricks, really, because he doesn't need new tricks. The bait is effective. He'll aim those ifs, God loves me, and those if he really loves you right at your vulnerability. But here's the truth. There's no power behind the curse anymore because Jesus broke it. He'll aim those ifs and those reallys right at your vulnerability. So what's your vulnerability? What is it that runs through your head that said, if God was actually good, if he really cared for me, I would have a different job. If he really loved me, I wouldn't be in the situation that I'm in. If he really knew me and loved me, I wouldn't be experiencing the pain and depression that I am. If he was really good, I would have already met that person. If I was really, if he was really good, if he actually loved me, I would make the money that I'm worth. And I would be able to find the job that I need if he really loved me. Those are our vulnerabilities. Those are our fears and our insecurities. And Satan is gonna throw the realies and the ifs right at you. And that's what he does here. He gets Eve to doubt God's word and God's character. Did God really say that? He's a liar. Watch this. Verses eight through 13. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool, uh, in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid 
because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me, you, you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. My second point is this, sin results in shame and separation. The result of sin is shame and separation. You see what they both did? What was their immediate reaction to their disobedience and their sin? It was to hide. It was to hide. Like I see this all the time in my house with my children because I love chocolate chip cookies and I will make them and I'll put them on top of the refrigerator or in the, fridge, in the freezer and I'll come home from work and I'll open up the chocolate chip cookie box and they are all gone. And I'll say, who ate my chocolate chip cookies? And you would think I had no children. That's how quiet it gets. Because they, they go hide under their bed, in their closet, because no one wants to fess up who ate dad's cookies. But right here, in the beginning of humanity, we see the immediate result of sin is that it isolates Adam and Eve from God. It separates them. And they go hide. Yet God still pursues them. He still calls on them. Like, think of the magnitude of this moment. Before this moment, there was no such thing as fear. Before this moment, there was no such thing as shame. Before this moment, there was no such thing as self-reliance. There was no isolation. There was no sadness. Nothing. And all of a sudden, in one moment, fear and shame and isolation come rushing into humanity. And the response of Adam and Eve is to hide. You have to ask yourself, in verse 10, when Adam says, and I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Why? What reason, what reason did Adam have to be afraid of God? I'll tell you what reason. The conversation that just happened by the tree the character of God was in doubt. And he believed the lie that God was not good. And he believed the lie that God's character is not good. And so he hid. Adam's response to his sin is not only to hide, but to make excuses. He justifies himself. He tries to explain why it was okay. It's not really his fault. Like this woman that you, you gave me, like it's her problem and it's also your problem, not my problem. Turns to Eve, same response. Well, it was, the, it, was, it was Satan. He's the one that deceived me. Right? It's the response to sin is excuses and blame and deflection. Satan always emphasizes the present pleasure of sin while keeping our minds blind to their consequences. Let me say that one more time. Satan always emphasizes the present pleasure and keeps us blind to the consequences. 
Like this is the way I view it. Like I don't know if you've ever experienced this with temptation in your life is, is you get this feeling that, that uh, is like, go ahead and do it. Do it. Like this little voice, like, go ahead and do it. You deserve it. You've waited long enough. Go for it. You've had a hard week. Do it. Go ahead. Go, go for it. Whatever it is. Right? There's, this, there's this, this thought, this whisper that says, go ahead, do it, do it, do it, do it. And then as soon as you do it, that same voice says, how dare you? I cannot believe you would do that. That's Satan. I would see this with my brother all the time. Like my brother's older than me, so I was the younger brother, the victim, right? All younger, so we're the victims. And my older brother would know I can get Andy to do things that he should not do for my enjoyment and his pain. And so he, was, he would do this to me. He, he, hey, Andy, why don't you go do this? Why don't you go get that? Go, go get some candy, whatever. And I'm like, no, I can't do it. He's like, no, you'll be fine. Go do it. And then I would do it, bring it back. He's like, oh, you are going to be in so much trouble. Right? You know this. And this is what's happening. Satan's tempting, saying, hey, did he really say that? He's a liar. Don't, don't listen to him. And then all of a sudden, they listen to the lie. And they go hide. Because the same lie that got them is the same lie that keeps them. The lie that got them, what God is not good. He's withholding from you. He's not good. And the same lie that keeps us in hiding is that he's not good. He won't forgive you. He'll be so disappointed in you. Satan always emphasizes the present pleasure of sin while keeping our minds blind to their consequences. And just the same as Abraham last week, his obedience had a lasting repercussion of blessing, so would Adam and Eve's sin have a lasting repercussion of shame and isolation on humanity. Because that's what sin does. It isolates, it shames, and it separates. Ravi Zacharias is a great apologetic. He says this, Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. My third point tonight is sin's consequences don't negate God's loving kindness. So glad we're finally here. <laughs> Because I don't like talking about Satan and I don't like talking about sin. I don't like talking about failure. I don't like talking about shame. But we have to because that's our experience as humans. But we're finally to God. We're finally here. Sin's consequences don't negate God's loving kindness. And can we just be honest for a second that sin actually has consequences? It does. I think sometimes we get in this mindset that because God is good and he's loving and he wants what's best for us, we can actually sin without the consequence. Just like last week we talked about, we, can, we want the blessing without the obedience. But we sin, and there are natural consequences to sin. Some of you are, are uh, in a situation because of someone else, someone else sinned. And you're feeling the repercussions of that. But that's the reality of a broken world. Sin has consequences and it has repercussions. But here's the great thing. 
about the consequences of sin is that it also is an opportunity for God to display his loving kindness towards you. God takes our sin seriously. He drove them out of the garden. That was their consequence. Separation had come. Death had entered the world. Look at verse 22 real quick, and then we're going to rewind. It says, Then God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. If they had eaten, and I think they probably were eating from the tree of life, they would live forever. And so kicking them out of the garden, driving them out, now death has entered the scene. Death has entered. Death is the consequence of sin. Not immediate death, Satan was right. They didn't drop dead. But death has entered humanity. In verse nine and 10, I wanna rewind to God's questions. Because I think his questions show his loving kindness. In verse nine, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And second question in verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Like you can feel, there's three questions that God asks Adam. Where are you? And it's not as if God didn't know where he was. Just like with my kids, when we play hide and seek, I know where they are. They're just terrible at hide and seek. God knew. He knew right where they were. But he says, Adam, where, where are you? And his qu next question is, but, but who told you that you were naked? You can, you can almost feel the progression of God's sorrow in his questions because he knows what's happened. His heart is breaking. It's the anguish of a good and loving father looking at his children who had every reason to trust him and they chose not to. This is not an interrogation. That's what I grew up believing about God is that it wasn't a, where are you? It was a, where are you? Get out here, Adam. That's what I grew up with, believing that God was angry and he just wanted to get me. We don't see that here. So we see God's loving kindness just in the way he asks the questions. And then in verse 21, fast forward, we see God's loving kindness in his provision for Adam and Eve. His loving kindness because of his provision. Verse 21. Well, verse 20 says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. He clothed them. They were naked. They were embarrassed. They were in shame. He said, I will cover your shame because what you've put together there with the fig leaves ain't cutting it. I'm going to provide for you to cover you completely. And this is the first time in human history, in the history of humanity, that blood was shed for the sin of humanity. 
This is the first time blood was shed for the sins of humanity. Something had to die in order to cover up their shame. Jesus is in Genesis chapter three. It's a foreshadowing. It's a, hey, this ain't the last time this is going to happen. God's loving provision shows his loving kindness. This is crazy. This is craziness. There's only two people on the entire planet, and they have turned from God. They have believed a lie about him, and he said, even in your rebellion, I will provide for you. Even in your running and hiding, I will cover you. I will keep you warm, and I will keep you safe, even in the rebellion. In Romans 13, 12 through 14, the Apostle Paul says, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not carousing and, drunk and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Clothe yourselves with Christ, the Lamb of God. Here's the crazy thing about how we think. We think it makes sense somehow that in our shame and in our sin, it is better to hide. Because I don't know anybody in my life that I've talked to, including myself, that when I sin, my immediate reaction is to go to the Lord. My immediate reaction is always to hide. I'm not talking about maybe in the trees, but I'm talking about hiding in my busyness, hiding in my distractions, hiding in anything that actually has, to, that makes me face what I've just done, that I believe the lie, that God's not looking out for me. He's not gonna take care of me. He isn't loving and he's not good, so I will take care of it myself. I'll take charge. Our natural reaction to sin is never to go to God it is always to run from him. Maybe it's because it was a fear of being, uh, a fear thing, the fear of being exposed for who we are. Maybe it's a shame thing that we believe that God won't accept me anymore because of what I've done. Or maybe it's the double-sided coin of pride. One side of the coin says, I don't deserve your covering, God. I'm terrible, I'm, I'm the worst. Or it's the other side of the coin that says, I don't need your covering, I've got this. Both sides of that coin are pride. So we stay in hiding. We live in our shame, believing the same lie that got us there, that God doesn't really love us. And that his word isn't really reliable. And that he isn't really good. Because we believe those lies, that he's not loving, his word's not reliable, and he's not good, we stay in our shame. We stay hidden from him and from everyone else, and we live a lie. But the truth is, God does love you. In fact, 1 John 4 eight says, God is love. And God's word is reliable. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, God's word is profitable and equips you for every good work. Not some, every. And he is absolutely 
perfectly good. Jesus himself in Luke 18, 19 says, no one is good except God. And so here's where we've been. Satan will tempt us to distrust God's word and distort his character. Sin's result is shame and separation. And sin's consequences do not negate God's loving kindness. So what do we do with this? I wanna ask four questions to leave you with. And I would ask you to write these down, take a picture of it, and just sit with them tonight. Whether it's during our 120 seconds or when you go home tonight. I want you to sit with these questions. The first question is the same question God asked Adam. Where are you? Where are you? Are you hiding? Who are you listening to? Who's gotten a hold of your ear? What lies are you believing? So where are you? What are your vulnerabilities, your shame, your fear that Satan is targeting in your life with the ifs and the reallys? Where are you? Because I believe God is walking through our life just saying, Andy, I'm right here, man. Trust me, follow me. Let me take care of you. My plans are better than your plans. My covering is better than your covering. Where are you? The second question is, whose covering are you living under? Yours or God's? Whose covering are you living under? If you're living under your covering, this is how you know. Because living under your covering, your effort, feels like running, it feels like hiding, it feels like shame, and it feels like fear, and it looks like excuses and blaming. Whose covering are you living under? Because God's covering looks and feels like living out in the open, being fully known and fully loved. It looks and feels like living under grace, living in confession continually, and experiencing healing and joy. I don't know about you, but God's covering sounds exactly what I want and exactly what I need. The next question is, would you consider no longer running and no longer hiding? Would you consider that? I know for a long time I ran and a long time I hid because I had a facade that I built up that I wanted people to think of me, but I was a prisoner of my own making. So would you consider no longer running or no longer hiding? And then lastly, do you know this God that we speak of? Two weeks ago, we talked about Jonah and that God is a God of mercy over and over and over. Last week, we talked that God is a God who is faithful and providing. And tonight, we talked about a God whose loving kindness never stops, even in our deepest valleys. Do you know that God? If you do not, man, don't leave tonight without talking to somebody. Talking to me, talking to Mary Ashton, one of our prayer team members down the front, don't leave tonight. If we can pray for you with any of these questions, man, let us do that. I wanna close with this. I always wanna close with Jesus and how this passage 
points us to Christ. Because just like Jonah and Abraham, Adam and Eve point us to Jesus. Adam and Eve were tested in a garden and so was Jesus. But the test that Adam and Eve failed in their garden, Jesus passed in his garden. And his obedience was passed on to us. Adam and Eve fell into temptation. Jesus stood firm in the face of temptation. Adam and Eve avoided the voice of God. Jesus lived every word he spoke. Adam and Eve hid in the shadow of a tree. Jesus was exposed and nailed to a tree. Adam and Eve covered themselves in shame. Jesus despised that shame and covered our sin by his own blood. Adam and Eve left the garden for the wilderness and under a curse. Jesus left heaven for the wilderness of of this earth to become the curse for us. And lastly, and this is my favorite, Adam and Eve's sin drove them out of God's presence. And the blood of Christ brings us back in to God's presence. If you do not know the freedom of Jesus Christ, you are the one missing out. So do not leave this place tonight if God's talking to you. Let him change you, let him renew you, let him show you his loving kindness, his faithful mercy, so that you can go into this world free as a bird and living life abundantly the way he designed it to leave you lived. So we're gonna go on 120 seconds, pray through these questions, and then we'll worship again in a second. Let's pray. God, thank you for your loving kindness. God, thank you that you are bigger than we thought you were. Because God, let's be honest, our fears and our doubts, they overwhelm us. They consume us. But God, we worship you and we always turn back to you because you are bigger than we think you are. God, thank you that even in our valleys, even in the moments of our rebellion and our sin, God, you are good. And your loving kindness covers all those things. God, let our loving kindness bring us to you and to bring us to repentance. God, let's not, let's not get it twisted. Don't let us get it twisted, Lord. Your loving kindness is for one reason, to lead us to repentance, to Jesus. So God, I pray that you'd move in us in a way that we would come out from our hiding and we would do business with you and we would experience, not just in word, not just in song, but we would experience your grace for ourselves. God, I gotta imagine that's why Peter asked for you to call him out of the water. He was tired of seeing everybody else experience your goodness and your miracles. He wanted to experience it himself. God, give us the courage to experience your grace and your forgiveness and your mercy for ourselves. We pray these things in your name. Amen.